after the sermon, we will sing from Psalm 56, the stanzas 4 and 5. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, and that includes you, boys and girls, he ascended into heaven. And that is what we confess with the Church of all ages. Christ was taken from the earth before the very eyes of the disciples. While the Lord Jesus Christ was walking and talking with his disciples, suddenly, just as they reached Bethany, he lifted up his hands, and while blessing his disciples, he was carried up into heaven. A cloud enveloped him, and he could be seen no more. That is the way the Bible describes it. And we believe it. We do not doubt it. For imagine if we did doubt this. Then all other tenets of our faith would also fall by the wayside. For if Christ did not ascend into heaven, then he could not be seated at the right hand of the Father either. And then he could not plead our cause either. And then his promise to prepare a place for us would not be realized either. As a matter of fact, then, just like with the doctrine of the resurrection, our whole life of faith would fall apart. And yet, if there is one doctrine which the modern scientists, and therefore also the modern theologians, reject, it is this one. For they say it is just not reasonable to believe such a thing as the ascension of Christ. They point to the scientific knowledge about the vastness of the universe. There are trillions of stars in the sky. And the sky is so big that it would take light 100,000 years to go from one end of the universe to the other. That is an enormous distance, especially if you consider that in one second light can travel around the world around the whole earth seven and a half times in one second. And so the universe is tremendously large. It is mind-boggling. And so their question is, where is heaven in all this? No one has ever discovered heaven, the dwelling place of God. How can you believe Christ's ascension into the vastness of space and that he ends up somewhere in heaven? Sure, they say, at the time of Christ, the people were simple enough to believe all that. For in those days, they believed that heaven was just above their heads, not so far away. But now we know better. We are much more sophisticated now. For let's be realistic. It is impossible that someone without a space suit and clothes meant for a mild climate and without any kind of propulsion mechanism would be able to travel through space in order to reach heaven, wherever that may be. Modern theologians go along with that kind of thinking. They are embarrassed by the simple worldview of the scriptures. They are embarrassed by your and my simplicity. The stories of the ascension and the like are, according to them, only meant to portray a moral truth. They are like fairy tales. 
you are not supposed to think that an event such as the ascension actually took place. That story was told only to teach us that Christ is now spiritually with us. Even a certain modern Reformed theologian in the Netherlands thinks so as well. He taught, for he was a teacher at a university, that the ascension has no real significance. That is why he writes that on Ascension Day he would rather go for a walk in nature than to visit church. It is in nature, he says, that you meet God. He does not reside in heaven someplace. However, brothers and sisters, let us not be confused by what modern man thinks. Let us not allow that. For it is those men who have lost their grip on reality. Ascension is as real as creation. A God who can create the whole universe in six days and who can send his son to be born in the flesh can also most certainly have him ascend into heaven. Nothing is impossible for that great creator. But you either believe him or you don't. If you do not believe him, if you deny the truth of this word, then that almighty God who made heaven and earth, who created the whole universe with its trillion of stars, will also deny you. And so what is the meaning of the ascension for us? What do the scriptures tell us in that regard? Well, that is most beautifully summarized in the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 18. I preach to you God's word about the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we will look at three things. First of all, the fact of the ascension. Secondly, the promise of the ascension. And then finally, the benefit of the ascension. I will preach to you God's word about the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. The fact, the promise, and the benefit of the ascension. What we know about the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, we know from the scriptures. We read there in Luke and in Acts that the disciples saw him go into heaven. The disciples saw it with their own eyes. The ascension took place in their sight so that they could also bear witness to that event. But to some people that is not good enough. For they say, Luke wrote both books. He wrote both the Gospel of Luke and he wrote the book of Acts. Except for a disputed reverence in Mark 16, Luke is therefore actually the only one who reported the ascension. But is that really true? The reality is that all of scriptures anticipate the triumph of Christ and his subsequent ascension. Think about the psalm we just sang together. God has gone on high with a joyful cry. It is the cry of triumph that God has accomplished on earth that he has set out to accomplish. It looks forward to the triumph of the Messiah. Psalm 110 also looks forward to the time that the priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, will sit down at the right hand of God the Father to make his enemies his footstool. Who are those enemies? They are none other than Satan and all his hosts. Psalm 110 speaks of the fact that that high priest will defeat him and subsequently take up his place of honor at the right hand of God. 
and he will ascend through the heavens in order to be able to take up his rightful place beside the Father. But what may have been obscure in the Old Testament becomes a lot clearer in the New. Christ himself said in Matthew 26, verse 64, to the high priest just before his death, But I say to all of you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Almighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Throughout his ministry, the Lord Jesus Christ prophesied of his ascension. He said, he said to the people, as we know from John 7, verse 33, I am with you for only a short time, and then I go to the one who sent me. And to the disciples, he said, as we know from John 16, Now I am going to him who sent me, yet none of you asks me, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And so it is not true that the ascension lies in a forgotten corner of the Bible someplace. It is not true either that the ascension is not all that important in the scheme of things. It is very important. It is vital for all of us. For consider, why did Christ go away? He had to do so in order to reunite heaven and earth. For that is what the attention was of the Lord God in the first place. He does not want us to be part of this sinful world full of misery. And that is why he prepares a place for all those who believe in him. This is not our final abode. The Lord Jesus wants us to be with him in heaven. And that is the great comfort we may have. Also those who mourn. He does not want to be any different, any distance. He does not want to be any contrast between heaven and earth. For you see, that is not what it was like in the beginning either. When God created all things, there was barely a difference or a distance to speak of between heaven and earth. God walked on the earth and he talked with Adam and Eve. God was near and so were the angels. The atmosphere on earth and in heaven was very similar. There was harmony. There was peace. God's will ruled both in heaven and on earth. The earth brought forth its fruit without any effort or pain or destruction or death. It is true, of course, that at that time heaven was the dwelling place of God and of the angels, and the earth was the dwelling place of men and all other creatures. But if man would have withstood the test of Satan, then also those boundaries would have been completely obliterated. Sin, however, caused a tremendous rift to occur between heaven and earth. The atmosphere, because of sin, became poisoned. Sin reigned on earth. Satan became the prince of the world. A tremendous chasm now exists between heaven and earth. The distance between heaven and earth is now so great that no mere man can bridge that great gap. 
And that is something that those modern theologians and modern scientists do not understand. They do not see that a distance between heaven and earth exists only because of sin. Sinful man cannot in any way reach heaven. He may seek for heaven in all the corners of the universe and in between, and he will never find it. If you want to taste heaven, if you want to find heaven, then you must believe in Christ. And only a true believer can have a foretaste of heaven. An unbeliever has no clue. He may peer through powerful telescopes in order to improve his vision, and he may even do that from outer space. But if he does not believe Christ, then he is still as blind as a bat. For why did Christ come to earth? He came so that that distance could be bridged. He made it possible that heaven and earth one day could be reunited again, never to be separated again. And that is what the Apostle John saw in the vision as he describes it in Revelation 21, verse 1 and 2. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a, beauty, as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. That is what will happen on the last day. That is what will happen on the day of judgment. For that reason, the catechism in answer 46 also refers to Christ's second coming. Christ's dwelling place will be in heaven until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. That, beloved, is the goal of the ascension. Christ is readying himself right now for that Final victory. But in the meantime, the decisive battle has already been won. And that, beloved, is what the ascension announces. Without the first victory, Christ would not be able to come back to claim his own. The ascension is the announcement to all that the battle has been won. He rose triumphantly into heaven. Christ has won the victory over Satan. What a tremendous feast that will have been, beloved, in heaven when Christ rose triumphantly into heaven to take his rightful place beside the Father. Thirty-three years earlier, Christ came to earth to be born in the flesh. He set aside all the glory that he had with the Father while he was still with him. He exchanged the heavenly peaceful atmosphere for a poisonous one. He was treated with disdain and contempt. That is the poisonous atmosphere here on earth. He was ridiculed. He was misunderstood. He was maligned. His words were twisted. They were ignored and they were denied. They hated him with satanic passion. All this was done by the very people he came to rescue from the grip of Satan. But many rejected him. They would not believe in him. They spat on him. They gave him a crown of thorns and they nailed him on a cross to die like a common criminal. Why? 
Why did he allow himself to be treated in this way? Why did he come down to this earth full of poisonous atmosphere? He did it for no other reason than to deal with sin once and for all. He did it for those who themselves hate sin and who want to flee from it. He did it for those who recognize that heaven is not yet on earth and that Satan is the ruler here. He did it for those who believe that both body and soul need to be redeemed. And that is why he also took his body with him to heaven, so that also his body, for our sakes, could be glorified. With the ascension, that brings us to the second point, the Lord Jesus also made certain promises. He promised that in spite of his ascent into heaven, he would be with them always. About that fact, there was some controversy during the time of the Reformation. That is why in this Lord's Day, compared to the previous Lord's Day, we have four question and answers. The previous Lord's Day, concerning the resurrection, only one. The Lutherans had a different concept than the Reformed. It was one of the main reasons that the two never joined forces. For what did the Lutherans teach? They taught that as soon as Christ rose into heaven, both his flesh and his spirit became fused together and became omnipresent, that is, everywhere present. They said, where the body is, there the spirit is also. And where the spirit is, there the body is also. The Lutherans taught this in connection with their doctrine of the Lord's Supper. And that is why question and answer 47 and 48 were added to the catechism. It is true, today we are no longer as greatly concerned with this doctrinal point. Nevertheless, it is good to pay attention to this, for it gives us a greater understanding of the true meaning of the ascension. According to the Lutherans, Christ is present both physically and spiritually in the bread and in the wine of the Lord's Supper. He, it is in, with, and under the elements, like fire in a red-hot iron. Although the bread remains bread and the wine remains wine, nevertheless, Christ is bodily present. But the question then is, what then happened at the ascension? Did Christ not take his body with him? Yes, they said, but now also his body became omnipresent, just like his spirit. And thus, when Christ ascended into heaven, his spirit and body became one. For is that not what Christ said just before his ascension? Did he not say in Matthew 28, verse 20, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age? See, said Luther, here it is quite clear, also after the ascension he is still with us. How else is that possible then? if he is not also bodily present. The Catechism gives a very clear and concise and precise answer. It says, Christ is both true man and true God. With respect to his human nature, he is no longer on earth. But with respect to his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is never absent from us. 
we have to distinguish carefully, says the Catechism, between his human nature and between his divine nature, between the fact that he is a man and between the fact that he is God. Christ is indeed bodily in heaven, that is our flesh, as answer 49 says. But that does not mean that his spirit cannot be on earth. Question and answer 48 further explain that. They explain that Christ's divinity has no limits, for he is God, and God has no limits. And that is why it stands to reason that his divinity is beyond his human nature. Nevertheless, we are taught further, his divinity is still united with his human nature. In other words, he still remains both man and God. You do not separate the two, nor can you fuse the two as the Lutherans do. Now, this sounds a little bit complicated to you, perhaps. And you may say to yourself, well, do we really need to know all this? Do we really have to get into this? Is it really necessary for us to know this for our salvation? Well, it may not be absolutely necessary for your salvation. But it is necessary so that you may know the riches of God's word and as it is summarized in the confession. The riches of what God, through his son, Jesus Christ, has acquired for you. For the catechism tells us this for our benefit. We come to the third point, the benefit of the ascension. The Gospel of Luke tells us about the life of Christ, about this, about that which he accomplished on earth, his birth, his childhood, his ministry, his suffering, his death, and finally his ascension. In other words, it tells us about his acts, about what he has done while on earth. Luke, as I mentioned earlier, also wrote a second book, which is known as the Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. It describes what the apostles did in order to spread the gospel all over the earth. But if you really think about it, is it really true that herein lie the acts of the apostles? For how does that book begin? After describing the ascension further, it describes Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So the book of Acts is really about what the Holy Spirit does. First, the Lord Jesus Christ sends his Holy Spirit, uh, just as he has promised in John 16, verse 7. And that is described in the first and second book of Acts. He said to them, but I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Christ did not ascend into heaven because he had finished his work. On the contrary, he went to heaven in order to complete his work. And thus we see that through his spirit he guides and strengthens and directs his apostles. He pours out his spirit on them. It is because of Christ's spiritual presence that his church gathering work could be finished. For only from heaven can he continue his work of salvation. Christ rose from the dead, and then he rose into heaven. Satan is no longer able to tempt him there or to assail him there. 
In Christ, that Son of God, our flesh, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and He is there as head of the church. And we, the church, are His body. And when the head has been saved from drowning, then also the body has been saved. If the head can stay above water, then the body will not drown either. Well, congregation, our head lives. He is saved with his Father in heaven. Our head is in heaven. And that means that we, the body, are also saved as long as we believe. For if you do not believe, then you are no longer part of the body. Through faith you belong to him, the head. And in order to keep you part of his body, he, the head, communicates with you every day. And that is what he did to the apostles as they went through the towns and cities with the glorious message of the gospel. Read through the book of Acts and see how they were sustained by the Holy Spirit day in, day out. And the same thing is true today. You can go to him. When you are terribly worried about things. When you don't see a way out anymore. At times of distress. At times of illness and loneliness. At times when a loved one is at death's door. And then God speaks to you through his word. And he makes his presence known to you. The Catechism also speaks about him as our advocate. What a wonderful name that is, beloved, our advocate. Do you know what an advocate is? An advocate, an advocate is someone who speaks on your behalf. It is someone who pleads your cause. In this world, it sometimes happens that a person is innocently accused and he is taken to court. But he has no idea as to plead, as to how to plead his own case. There are so many laws and regulations and procedures. But then he hires a lawyer, someone who knows the ropes. And then that lawyer, he goes to bat for you. He speaks on your behalf. What a relief. You can leave it up to him. Well, Christ is our advocate. Except he is perfect in what he does. An an earthly advocate can and does make mistakes. And there is only a limit to what he can do. But our heavenly advocate does not make any mistakes. And there is no limit to what he can do. For example, an earthly judge can throw a demanding advocate out of court or deny his requests. The judge can also ignore him or even hold him in contempt. But those things are not possible in the heavenly courtroom. For you know something? Our advocate has our flesh with him in heaven. That is the great comfort that we may have. He can tell the judge on the basis of his own glorified body that he has paid the penalty for us in the flesh. The great judge in heaven cannot deny him any of his requests. If he were to deny our advocate, then he would have to throw him out of heaven. And that would never happen, and that could never happen. The Lord God would never do that. 
For he is a just God. And not only that, Christ is both man and God. It is impossible for God the Father to throw out God the Son, for they are one. Christ's flesh is our guarantee. It is a pledge to us. It is a pledge to us that Christ will also take us to himself, the Catechism says. His body guarantees it. But the Lord God knows that we are still on earth. And that is why he also grants us a counter-pledge, as it says in the Catechism. And his counter-pledge is his Holy Spirit. So in heaven there is something which belongs to us, our human nature. But God has also given us something that belongs to him, his Holy Spirit. What a wonderful covenant God we have, beloved. The two pledges remind us of marriage. At the time of a wedding ceremony, the bride and the groom exchange rings. In this way, they pledge their troth. Well, God also exchanges rings with us. He has our flesh and we have his spirit. He is the head We are the body. Brothers and sisters, how the Holy Spirit once again opens up our eyes to the wonderful confession about the ascension. The Holy Spirit, Christ's counter-pledge, is with us now. What an anchor that is for the soul. What a hope we have for the future. What a wonderful God. We have. Amen.